2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll get there in just a minute. We are in the middle of a series of lessons on the topic of witnessing, and we have covered the Holy Spirit and witnessing and talked about the Bible and witnessing and how to start and carry a conversation for the purpose of witnessing. And uh, we've mainly uh, talked about learning to ask the right questions for the purpose of starting conversation, carrying conversation. Uh, Brother Gage taught a great lesson on using the law in witnessing to establish guilt and condemnation to define the problem so that we can present the solution. The solution, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and many different ways that we can present that good news to a lost soul who understands the bad news and is ready to receive it. And verses we can turn to and analogies we can use, and we've uh, discussed all of these things. At the end of that last, last lesson on, on how to present the gospel, some ways to present the gospel, we noted that our nation has basically become a mission field. America was founded on biblical principles by God-fearing men, but today it is nothing close to a Christian nation. And if you didn't hear the sermon from Thursday night, uh, Brother James uh, really gave an excellent uh, description of this. We are no longer a nation with one God. And what that means is, you can't necessarily just turn to Romans 3.23 and start with all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Um, years ago in our country, everybody had enough of a foundation where you could start there. Everybody knew there was a God and knew who he was and knew that he had written his word in the Bible and his son was Jesus Christ who had, was born of a virgin and died on the cross. That was common knowledge that was commonly held belief but today when we're trying to preach the gospel to every creature we often have to start a lot back uh, back a lot further than all of sin comes short of the glory of god we've got to establish the truth that there is a god that he's the creator of all things that he revealed himself to man and he revealed his will to man in the pages of the Holy Bible, that the Bible is the Word of God. And if, if you can establish that basis in a witnessing conversation, you are miles and miles and miles ahead. If the person that you're talking to professes to believe that the Bible is the Word of God, then you can go from there and make progress. I will often ask that question when I'm talking to somebody. I will ask somebody, do you believe that the Bible is God's Word? Now, if they say no, then we'll begin the conversation that we're going to talk about this morning. If they say yes, well, then I can show them things from the Bible, and they either have to receive it because it's what the Bible says and they say they believe the Bible, or they have to try to explain it away, or they have to contradict themselves, but they kind of painted themselves into a corner. Do you understand what I'm saying? To be able to establish in a conversation with somebody I'm witnessing to that the Bible is the Word of God, it is a huge step in the right direction. What we want to do today 
is give ourselves the ability to have that conversation. Just some information and some knowledge that I could use to speak to someone who doesn't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. I can explain to them why it is that I do believe that the Bible is the Word of God and, Lord willing, progress in a witnessing conversation from there. Let me give you these statistics that are from 2017. This is six years ago. So what I'm going to, to give you is probably worse now. But in 2017, there was a Gallup poll conducted, which found that at that time, 24%, bless you, of Americans believed that the Bible is the word of God and is to be taken literally. There were 24 out of 100 people who said, yes, the Bible is God's word. Yes, it means what it says. Bless you. Okay. There were 47 47% who said that they believe the Bible is inspired by God, but it is not to be taken literally. That God gave the Bible, but it doesn't mean what it says. Okay? And then 26 responded that the Bible is a collection of fables, histories, and moral precepts recorded by men. 24%, it's the word of God, means what it says. 47%, well, God inspired it, but he didn't mean it. And then 26%, it men wrote the Bible. Now, that that's interesting. That's, that's horrible that there are more people in this country who believe the Bible is a myth. 26% then there are people who think the Bible is God's word and God said what he said on purpose because he means what he said. And you're supposed to take it literally. There are more people who think the Bible is a myth, a joke, a fairy tale, a legend than is the word of God and, and ought to be taken seriously. Majority of people somewhere in the middle on the fence, God had something to do with the Bible, but um, I've probably got some better ideas. Now, with that in mind, how am I going to be able to witness to these people? I need to be able to, to establish a foundation on which to build that conversation, right? But how do I do that? We're going to talk about the evidence that there is for inspiration. And we'll start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is not something we have never covered. I checked my notes last time. Uh, we taught this was something like six years ago. That means some of you may have uh, well been here. Others, many of you were not. So seemed like a good time to cover this again. We'll see how far we can get this morning. I'm not sure that we can finish, but we'll do our best and uh, ask God for his help. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The Bible clearly claims to be divinely inspired. Inspiration means God breathed the words. The words that men wrote down were not their ideas, their beliefs, their opinions, their fantasies. It was the words that God dictated. 
that God spoke, that God gave. He used human penmen to record the words, but they are his words. It's as if an attorney dictates a letter and the secretary is sitting across the desk. And as the attorney speaks, the secretary types and the letter is finished and and, 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 and the secretary hits print on the computer, but the secretary doesn't sign the letter. She wrote it down, but the words aren't hers. The words are the attorney's. And so even though the secretary wrote them, the attorney signs his name because he spoke them. Okay, And the Bible was recorded by men throughout history But God inspired the words. And so it's not the words of David, the words of Paul, the words of Jeremiah, the words of Solomon, the words of Moses. It is the word of God. That's inspiration. 415 times the Bible uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord. 313 times scripture references the word of God. Or the word of the Lord. God does not make it unclear. He, he, he very clearly states that the Bible is his word. Read with me 2 Peter chapter 1. The same truth is found there. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse number 19. 2 Peter 1 and verse 19. The Bible says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, wherein you do well that you take heed as into a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, the day star arise in your hearts. Verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. Verse 21, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Again, the Holy Ghost is responsible for the words of scriptures. That is inspiration. Come to Psalm 12. It's not there in your outline, but it is in mine, and we do need to read it. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12 and verse number 6. The words of the Lord. You see, they're God's words. The words of the Lord are pure words. Pure means unadulterated. It means nothing else is mixed in. It's not 51% God's word and 49% man's word. The words of the Lord are pure words means it's 100% God's word. He has not allowed it to be corrupted by men. Now, he used imperfect men to record his words. That's the only option that he has. He used imperfect men to fulfill the promise that he makes here to preserve his word. Keep reading. The words of the Lord are pure words, 100% God's word. A silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation Forever. How can you be confident that what you have today are really the same words that God had given originally? Because God promised to make sure that it happened. It is supernatural. It is miraculous. It is something that I accept by faith. But I have faith in a God who created the heaven and the earth. 
And if he's able to create the heaven and the earth, I believe he is able to give his words and preserve his words and keep them from being corrupted. It just makes sense. If you believe in God, then certainly he has the power to do this. And if he loves us and wants us to have a relationship with him, then he needs to reveal himself. So it just makes sense that he would do this. That he would communicate with us. That he would show us who he is. That he would tell us what he wants. That he would lay out clearly how we can enter into relationship with him. So God gave his words inspiration and promised to give us his words. That's preservation. And my faith is not in the human penmen who recorded the words in the first place. My faith is not in the men who copied the words throughout history. My faith is not in the men who translated the words from one language to another. My faith is in the God who, who, who made the promise to preserve his word. He is powerful enough to keep that promise. Okay, So, so I believe in the, in the inspiration of of scripture. I believe that what we have today is 100% pure, perfect, the word of God. Now that is a matter of faith. That is a matter of faith. That must be received by faith. But it is not a matter of blind faith. Okay? It is faith that is based on credible evidence. You see, faith and evidence are not mutually exclusive. Faith and reason are not mutually exclusive. This is a reasonable faith. This is a credible faith. There is evidence to support this faith. There are reasons to believe that the Bible is divinely inspired. We list six of them here and we'll see how many we can cover this morning. First of all, the continuity of Scripture. The continuity of Scripture, or you could say the unity of Scripture. Turn to the table of contents in your Bible with me, if you would. Before the book of Genesis, I would assume that in your Bible somewhere uh, in the front, you have a table of contents listing all the books in order, helping you find the page on which those books begin. I just, I, I want you to look at it for a moment and listen to what we have to say. The word Bible comes from the Latin Biblia, meaning books, plural. So the Bible is a book made out of books. If you were to count all of the books in your table of contents, there are 66 books in the Bible. Those 66 books were written down, were penned by about 40 different men, as best we can tell. 66 books, 40 human penmen, and as best we can tell, three different languages over a course of 1,600 years. Okay, so the Bible is a book of books. It's one book. It, it is one book, but it's made of many books. Those many books were written by 40 different men 
three different languages over a period of 1,600 years, and they address all aspects of human existence, philosophy, and religion, and anthropology, and history, and poetry, and all of these things combined together, and yet... And yet, 66 books, 40 penmen, 1,600 years, three languages, and yet it all fits together as a single cohesive unit without contradictions. And that is nothing short of miraculous, and it argues for the inspiration of Scripture. How is it that we have this one book made up of 66 books written by so many different people from so many different backgrounds over such a long span of history. How did we get it to all fit together the way that it does? The only way to explain that is that there is one author, not 40 authors. There is one author, there are 40 penmen. Continuity means uninterrupted connection, succession, or union. Continuity means uninterrupted duration or continuation, especially without essential change. Listen to this. Shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, military generals, a cupbearer, a priest, all of these different types of men penned portions of the scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether recording history or giving spiritual instruction or pronouncing judgment. They composed their work from palaces, from prisons, from the wilderness, places of exile. They wrote history, laws, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It never contradicts itself or its common theme. Just think if we were to attempt to replicate this today. Today we start a project, a book of religion. A book of philosophy, a book that touches every aspect of human life. And we're going to recruit 40 men who speak three languages and we're going to stretch it out over 1,600 years. They're going to write independently of one another okay, um, about history and morals and religion and poetry and relationships and science and sociology and profit. And it's all going to fit together and it's going to mesh seamlessly and there's going to be no contradictions. There, nobody's going to say anything different than what the other person said. It's just not going to happen. But it did happen when God gave us the Bible. I believe it's the Word of God, and there's good reason to believe it's the Word of God. This is why when Brother James sometimes preaches about so many incredible things in the Bible... Like the things that just blow your mind when you see them. He is always so careful to, 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 to mention this could not have happened by accident. This is not a coincidence. Uh, the, coincidence. The authors did not and could not have colluded or conspired or worked together to make this stuff up. The only reason the Bible fits the way it does is because it's divinely inspired. It has, has one author. Point number two is the endurance of scripture come to psalm 119 the endurance 
of Scripture. Psalm 119 and verse 89. What are we talking about this morning? Some, some things that not only bolster my faith and confidence in the Word of God, but some things that I can have ready to tell someone to explain why they too should believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Because that's an important starting point to tell them about Jesus Christ and to explain salvation and eternal life because it all comes from the Bible. Psalm 118, 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. This is an eternal book. It is an indestructible book. Verse 160, Psalm 119, 160. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I'm teaching right up here. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Away, The Bible is eternal. God said men will attempt to destroy it. They will attempt to eradicate it, but they will be frustrated in their purpose. They will fail in the attempt, and history has borne this out. There is no other book that has been more attacked throughout history than the Bible. And here it stands, the world's best seller. Diocletian was a Roman emperor in 300 AD, and he ordered, he pronounced an edict that every Bible should be burned. He thought if he could destroy the scripture, he could destroy Christianity. Anyone caught with the Bible would be executed. That's 300 AD. Not 25 years later, the next Roman emperor ordered 50 copies of the Bible to be made at government expense when it wasn't so easy and inexpensive to make a book. So in 25 years, we went from, we're going to eradicate every copy of the Word of God from the face of the earth to the government is going to sponsor the publication and distribution of said Scripture. Why? Because God's Word will not pass away. In 1728, there was a French skeptic by the name of Voltaire, V O L T. A-I-R-E, Voltaire. I always want to pronounce it Vulture, but that's not it. It's Voltaire. V-O-L-T-A-I-R-E. He destroyed the faith of thousands with his skepticism and his philosophy. He boasted that within 100 years of his death, the Bible would disappear from the face of the earth. 1728, he died, and we are... Quick math, 300 years from that. And I still have a Bible, don't you? In fact, the irony of history is this. 50 years after his death, guess who bought Voltaire's home? The Geneva Bible Society. And guess what they did with Voltaire's home? They set up printing presses to publish and disseminate the Word of God. Why? Heaven or pass away. God's Word shall not pass 
away. 19th century, 1800s, there's a famous agnostic by the name of Robert Ingersoll, I-N-G-E-R-S-O-L-L. He raised the Bible in his hands. He declares, 15 years, and I'll have this book in the morgue. Guess what happened 15 years later? Ingersoll himself is six feet under, but the Bible remains. The endurance of Scripture is good proof that there's something special, something supernatural about this book. Thirdly, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. We'll probably finish here this morning. Come to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and we'll read a string of verses related to this point. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 and verse number 9. Isaiah 46 verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. What makes God so unique? Verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. You know what prophecy is? Prophecy is history written in advance. And the Bible, I read a, a, an, an article one time that said at the time of its writing, it was over 25%. It was 27 or 28% of the Bible was prophetic. Declaring what was going to happen before it happened. You know who can do that? No man can do that. But God can do that. Because God's eternal, he dwells outside of time because he sees the end from the beginning. The Bible is full of prophecy and, the, and, and many of which have been fulfilled. We have utmost confidence all of them will be fulfilled because of those that have been fulfilled. And it just points to the fact that the God who sees the end from the beginning, who is eternal, who dwells outside of time, he's the one who wrote the book. Only God can declare the end from the beginning, can show the, show the former things from ancient times. Look at chapter 42, verse 8. Again, the same point is made. Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give unto another, neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Now, men have attempted to do this throughout history. Men like Nostradamus and others have made really vague, ambiguous um, statements. And then they're later interpreted to fulfill some current event. But God gives specifics. God gives details. God gives when and where and why and how. And it happens just the way that he says. Look at chapter 48. Verse number 3, chapter 48, verse 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning, and they went forth out of my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass, because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it thee. Lest thou shouldst say, mine idol hath done them, and my graven image, my molten image, hath commanded them. God's saying, I'm proven to you who I am by declaring what is going to happen before it happens. Look at chapter 41. One more. Chapter 41, verse 21. 
Isaiah 41, 21. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. This is a challenge. If, if, if you want us to believe you have power, do this. And it's exactly what God has done. Okay? So just for example, the, the book of Daniel. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? Daniel 2? Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet part iron, part clay. And he had that dream, and God told Daniel what the dream was and what it meant. It was, it was history in advance, the history of the empires of the world. Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, and there's coming another kingdom after you, the Medo-Persian Empire, and another kingdom after that, the Greek Empire, and another kingdom after that, the Roman Empire. And it's all laid out in Daniel chapter 2, and it fits exactly the course of world history. And so here's what people do. They can't have a Bible that tells history in advance. So they try to say that Daniel was written really after all of these things took place. There's no evidence for that other than he knew what was going to happen before it happened. We got to explain that away because that points to the divine inspiration of scripture. Those beasts in chapter seven, the vision God gave Daniel, same thing. God God lays it out. He, 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 he described, he described the conquests of Alexander the Great before there was ever an Alexander the Great. It's, it's written in history. Cyrus is the name of the Persian king who took the Jews back to their homeland out of Babylonian captivity. He is, he is named in Isaiah 44 and 45, a hundred years before he existed. How do you explain that? Well, here's what people are trying to do. They try to say that Isaiah actually was written way later than the manuscript evidence points to. Because we can't have a book that's naming people 100 years before they're born. That would, that would force us to conclude that it's God's word and then we'd have to believe it and live by it. People don't want to do that. Right? Fulfilled prophecy is strong evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Bible students have identified 351 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Christ at his first coming. 351 prophecies related to the first coming of Jesus Christ. All of these recorded hundreds of years before Jesus entered the world. Many of them fulfilled not by his friends, but by his enemies who stand to lose the most with their fulfillment. Now, the fulfillment of these prophecies is recorded in the scripture, but it's also, it's also recorded elsewhere. Extra scriptural resources validate what we read in the New Testament. There was Tacitus, the, the Roman historian, Pliny the Younger, a Roman governor, Josephus, a Jewish historian, Lucian the Greek, the Babylonian Talmud, a collection of writings by Jewish rabbis. Listen, none of these people were the friends of Christ. None of these people were Christians, but they all alluded to Jesus of Nazareth and supported the statements made in the New Testament about that man who was anything but a man. He was God manifest in the flesh. So let me give you this. It's in the pamphlet here. Um, I've always 
really enjoyed this. Back late 1960s, there was a professor by the name of Peter Stoner who did some statistical analysis. He calculated the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies made concerning Messiah. He's a lot smarter than I am. I'm glad he did this and wrote it down. The results are published in a book entitled Science Speaks. Trust the science. Follow the science. Here's what the science says. He conservatively estimated the chances of one man fulfilling eight, just eight, Eight messianic prophecies, that would be one in 10 to the 17th power. A one with 17 zeros after it, a big number. Knowing what exactly to call that number wouldn't do anything to help me understand how large a number it is. So suppose, imagine this in your mind. We're going to cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. I wish that I could do that. I would be a very rich man. We'd have this building up in no time, right? We mark one of the two feet deep, entire state of Texas, silver dollars. We take one of them and we paint it blue. And then we stir the whole thing up. And then we blindfold you and we let you go and we drop you right in the center. You can walk as far as you want in any direction. You can pick up one silver dollar. And the chances you have of picking up the blue silver dollar would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The same chances that one man could fulfill eight messianic prophecies. In another calculation, Stoner used 48 prophecies and arrived at an extremely conservative estimate that the probability of 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one person is an incredible number, 10 to the 157th power. We just added a bunch of zeros. I cannot begin to fathom a number that large. So this time, suppose that we start by counting 250 electrons a minute for 19 million years without taking a break. Once that's done, we'll mark one of those electrons by painting it blue. Then we'll blindfold you. You're going to be real old. But we'll blindfold you and try to let you find the right one. Your chances are 1 in 10 157th power. That's the same chances a man could fill just 48 of the more than 300 prophecies made concerning Messiah. Here's Professor Stoner's conclusion. Any man who rejects Christ, the Son of God, is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. So we do have credible evidence and we need to be prepared. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you or reason the hope that is in you. Have some answers ready. Be able to discuss the evidence for the inspiration of Scripture, and we'll give you the next three next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, uh, Lord, for giving us your word and every reason to believe it. Help us to believe it enough to live by it. And God bless our time now in the preaching hour, and we love you in Jesus' name.